Hi everyone, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 14 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. Today's episode is number 14, and it's about relevant events and relevant matters. So this episode is to build on what we were speaking about in the previous episode, where we spoke about how to go about submitting an extension of time request. And this is really to put some more meat on the bones, if you like, as to what the relevant events are, what the relevant matters are, why they are two separate things. Some of them overlap with each other and some of them don't, and to explain which ones are which and why. So just to touch on what we were speaking about last week, the scenario is that we've already identified some delays, we've submitted a notice, and we're now in a position of we need to provide the further particulars surrounding that delay so that your contractor can assess your extension of time, assess any costs associated, and grant an award. And of course, this is a JCT contract, so it couldn't have simply just said provide enough detail. It had to say particulars, and what it's really getting at is you need to provide enough information and really records to justify your position and to demonstrate why the delays occurred, why it's the fault of the contractor, and the periods involved. And I really wanted to make this episode to go into a bit more detail on those relevant matters and events, because I've heard no end of times the phrase, if you get the time, the costs will follow. And I've heard that from commercial managers, commercial directors, and to an extent it's true, but you have to be on the right lines. If you're chasing costs, you have to be chasing a relevant event that's got a relevant matter associated with it. And the point of me saying that is that the delay events under JCT are segregated from the cost events in the contract and the cost events don't cover everything that you're entitled to an extension of time for. If you're going chasing extensions of time for things that you're never going to get any costs for, you're barking up the wrong tree. And we mentioned some of this in the episode about the weather. And the weather is a good example of one of those neutral events that's nobody's real fault, the contract rarely saying nobody gets punished for. And maybe you could say, all right, if you don't get any costs awarded, then you're getting punished for it. But what I mean by that is the client and the contractor aren't in control of the weather. They haven't caused this issue. They're not causing you to lose money on it. It's the weather. But on the flip side, what they're not able to do is charge you for the liquidated damages or whatever actual damages that fall down to a weather delay. Now, I'll just read out the loss and expense clause for you and in typical JCT fashion it's a barrel of laughs. So this is clause 4.14. If in the execution of this subcontract the subcontractor incurs or is likely to incur any direct loss and or expense because the regular progress of the subcontract works of any part of them has been or is likely to be materially affected by any relevant subcontract matter The subcontractor shall, subject to clause 4.14.2 and compliance with the provisions of clause 4.15, be entitled to reimbursement of that loss and or expense. That's brilliant. Is there any wonder why contracts don't get read when they read like that? So what does that mean? 
So if you are impacted by one of the list of matters that we're going to touch on in a minute, you're entitled to recover the cost that you've incurred. Then the clause refers to two other clauses. One of those says, in a nutshell, if you're being paid elsewhere for something that forms part of that cost, you can't recover it here. And largely, this is going to be variations. So if you've incurred loss and expense due to the volume of variations on the job, you can't charge for the loss and expense if you've already put it in your quote for your variations. The next clause that it refers to is requiring you to do a few things. The first of those is to submit a notice, which we've already mentioned in a previous episode. The second is that you provide particulars along with your assessment of the costs as soon as you can practically do it. The third point is that you must provide enough information for the contractor to verify your costs and you must go on doing that for as long as the delaying issue carries on for. So if this is something that's lasting a period of many months, then you've got to go on providing the information on a monthly basis to allow the costs to be examined. The final point of that clause then says that the contractor will provide you his assessment within 42 days of your first submission. So he's got five weeks to turn around his initial assessment. And then on a rolling basis, if you've established there's a precedent and the costs are continuing to build up, he has to provide on a monthly basis his assessment of your costs. So unsurprisingly, when you get down to the list of relevant matters, there are less of them than relevant events. That being because the relevant events include those neutral issues as well. So the first item is variations. So this is a bit of a fallback position to basically say that you can charge for variations as loss and expense if you can demonstrate that it's a valid change under the contract, but you haven't included for it anywhere else. So that is a bit of a given that you can't charge for it as a change and then you can't also charge for it as loss and expense. But this might be useful in a situation where you've got a change of conditions and it's a bit hard to sort of demonstrate what the effects are other than by demonstrating what your actual cost is on it. But the main reason that's there is to capture the time and to capture the time associated cost that might be associated with variations that you haven't built into quotes as and when they've occurred. So purely from a knowing where you are perspective, it might be preferable to build in a request for additional time and a request for additional costs into your variation quote. When that's accepted, you're guaranteed to be paid that amount and the contractor can issue an extension of time alongside the instruction. If they're sensible, that simplifies the process and it makes everything clear and visible open and upfront and so on so everyone knows where they stand but you've got the option of if you're unsure on duration you can leave that bit at large and you can come back at a later point and ask for that cost as part of a loss and expense claim and in all likelihood you'll do the first option but if there's a lot of changes and the impact of each little change on its own doesn't really do a lot but On aggregate, it's causing you a problem. This is what this clause is for. And that is a relevant subcontract event and matter. 
And the same goes for the next item, which is instructions. So the phrase there is contractor's instructions, including those which pass on a main contract instruction downstream to you. So it then goes into a bit further detail on that. To clarify, that includes for all instructions from the contractor, including where provisional sums are instructed, but where it's a defined provisional sum, then that provisional sum was deemed to be included in your contract and your program to start with. Where there is an instruction to open up the works, provided that whatever defect it was instructed to clear up, that was found to be correct when you did open up the work, then there's the instructions to clear up discrepancies between subcontract documents or subcontract and the main contract documents, and the postponement of work. So that covers 14.16.2 and 2.19.2. Then the two things start falling out of sync with each other. So under relevant events, you've then got the deferment of possession of the site. There isn't a direct correlation between that and a relevant matter. But then there is the catch-all clause in the relevant matters, which says... Any impediment, prevention or default, whether by act or omission by the employer or any employer's person except to the extent caused or contributed to any default, whether by act or omission of the subcontractor or any subcontractor's person. Another humdinger. That essentially allows you to recover anything where the employer is given an instruction or caused a problem provided that you haven't contributed to that problem. So if the client's fucked up and you didn't help them to fuck up, you can recover some money against it. I'm not sure you'll see that written in any textbooks. You've then got 2.19.4 that relates to adjustment for approximate quantities that were nowhere near their original estimate. That lines up nicely with 4.16.5. Then you've got a relevant event which stands on its own. 2.19.6 and this is for suspension of the subcontract work because of non-payment and it's anticipated that if you're suspending the work you're pulling off site it's not causing you any cost you're not continuing to send your manager and your labor there so there shouldn't be loss and expense associated with that but the next item does tie up 2.19.7 that nicely aligns with 4.16.4 and that covers where the contractor suspends his performance because the client hasn't paid him. So that basically lets you recover your costs in that situation, which presumably the contractor would be looking to charge that upstream as part of a claim to the client. We've then got 2.19.5, which speaks to 4.16.3. And these two clauses refer to 3.15.1 of the main contract conditions. So helpfully, there's no real information in the subcontract to tell you what that is. But it is in fact a clause relating to the discovery of antiquities, anything of historical interest, archaeology and the likes, either on the site or buried beneath the ground. And this is to cover both parties for the unexpected discovery of some archaeology on site. If you picture the remains of Richard III being discovered beneath that car park in Leicester and that car park being on your site, all the commotion and delay and archaeological investigation, press involvement and the likes, this would be to cover your back in case of that happening. Then you've got these two catch-all clauses, and these two things are present in both the relevant events and the relevant matters. 
I've already read one of them out, so I won't do it again. So 2.19.8 sits with 4.16.7. This relates to acts and omissions by the employer. So basically we're talking of if something isn't listed in the clear events above, if the employer has caused us a problem and it's caused us to lose money and time, then these are the events to quote. And lastly then of these payable items, we've got 2.19.9 and 4.16.8. And this is essentially the same clause, but where the contractor sits at fault for any of the issues. And again, the context of this is the contractor's fucked something up for us. If you haven't contributed to that issue yourself, then you're able to claim time and costs for it. And in terms of cost recovery, that's your lot. And as I say, those are the items where you can lay the blame at the feet of either the contractor or the employer. Then we've got eight other items which form part of the relevant subcontract events to which there is only time entitlement. So the point now is that we're using these only to get ourselves relief from liquidated damages and there's no cost benefit to us to obtain an extension of time with these events. So you've got 2.19.10 which relates to statutory service delays. Some of our favourite issues on construction sites regularly occur because of statutory service providers, these being your water, gas, electricity, BT installers. The guys are just a law to themselves. They turn up when they want with however much resource they think they need, whether that's the right amount or not. They sometimes turn up, say they've got the wrong thing and then they're not seen again for weeks. I've even had a scenario where a BT man turned up on site to remove a telegraph pole which was impeding our foundations. He's come and looked at the pole, presumably had everything he needed to get rid of it, and then said, oh no, this paperwork has got a different postcode on it. I can't take that one down. The drawing that he had identified quite clearly the right post that we needed to take out. But what we'd done is put the postcode for the university's head office rather than the specific adjacent building onto the application form, not really knowing any better. And that was enough for the guy to decide he's not doing the work today. Off he goes. And it was six weeks, another changed application before we got a man back to do the removal. Ridiculous. It is about time somebody did something about statutory authorities because they've been the ruin of many a poor job. And God, I know I'm one. But the principle there is it's out of your hands. It's out of the employer's hands. It's nobody's real fault. Although we know that's not true. So we don't get punished with LADs for it. The contractor doesn't get punished with your prelims for it. So the same really goes for the weather, which is the next event, 2.19.11. I covered weather in some detail in episode 9 of the podcast. So if you want a deeper dive on weather, do go back and listen to that episode of the show. 2.19.12 covers loss or damage occasioned by any specified peril. So the definition of specified peril is actually referred to within the insurance section of the subcontract. And what the principle here is that other than some accepted risks, you are asked to insure the contract or your contracted works to cover various, if you like, acts of God. And these are stated as fire, lightning, explosion, storm, tempest, flood, escape of water from any water tank, apparatus or pipe, earthquake, aircraft, and other aerial devices, or articles dropped from them. Riot and civil commotion. And as I started to say there, the principle is that it's your insurance that you're contracted to take out, which will cover your costs 
if one of these specified perils should materialize on your job. And then all that should leave you with is the matter of the time that might have been lost, which the contractor is bound to give you an extension of time for. Then you've got 2.19.13, which is for specifically civil commotion and the threat of terrorism. And it also notes that any intervention by relevant authorities in dealing with the threat. So if the police come and lock down a particular area because of terrorist activity, you have the right to an extension of time for that. 2.19.14. You've then got strike, lockout, or local combination of workmen affecting trades. This also trickles down to manufacturers, designers, transport, and so on, affecting the main contract work, noting that doesn't mean the subcontract works. So what this is saying is if there's a union strike, or even just a local getting together to create a strike, like some rogue band of mortar delivery men, they're revolting for more money. And then we can cover the time that we've lost. 2.19.15, another wordy one. But this is here to capture government intervention. So this could be either the HSE or other government bodies if they close the site for any reason. Or a blanket change in law beyond the main contract's base date. So pulling an example out of the air. If the government decided to down everybody to a three-day working week, that would fall under here, and there'd be an extension of time for that. And nearly there, 2.19.16 is for delay in approvals by statutory bodies. So this might be local council permission to demolish a building or to create a dropped curb or something like that that you've got responsibility to do. The caveat with that is that you have to have taken all practical steps to avoid or reduce that delay. So it's not a case of you've sent one email and that's job done and God knows how long it's going to take. You're expected to use your reasonable effort to chase up and obtain the approval that you need. And assuming it doesn't come, then you're entitled to the loss of time. And last one then, we've got 2.19.17, which is force majeure that old chestnut. So what you might term a force majeure, wars, natural disasters, riots, epidemics, some of these are items that you're expected to insure for, but this is here to capture other sort of acts of God, if you like, that are beyond anybody's control. Good example being the COVID-19 pandemic. We all had extensions of time for the COVID-19 pandemic and they all came under that very clause. Now, I wanted to delve into these in the detail that we've gone through today, which is really just a brief overview of which is which, in effect, as in which events come with costs associated and which ones are just time events. And what I've referenced here is the standard JCT 2016 design and build subcontract. And you need to remember that those are the standard conditions a lot of main contractors amend some of their conditions and they may well have tinkered with some of the entitlements under the typical relevant matters and the typical relevant events. So as always, I would very much encourage you to read your subcontract. If you do read it, you'll see I've tried to explain these matters and events in some plain speaking English rather than the language that they're written in. And hopefully that's given you a flavour of what you're entitled to do under your subcontracts. 
when it comes to obtaining extra time and extra costs to go along with it. And I mentioned before, but the simple principle to remember is if it's the employer's or the contractor's fault, then you're likely to be able to recover costs. If it's a neutral event, i.e. your weather, your force majeure, you're likely to only obtain an extension of time, and that is just there to give you relief from any damages. Okay, so that's not the most thrilling subject, but hopefully I've given you a bit more understanding of the extension for time clauses and the loss and expense clauses over the last couple of weeks. If you found that useful and you think somebody else could benefit from it, I'd be really grateful if you share the show with them. I really just want to raise awareness of commercial matters within the industry, and I'd be really grateful of your help in spreading the message. So thanks for tuning into today's show. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone, where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors, and in there you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews, and more. It's less than the price of your cup of coffee per day, and you can cancel any time. We're also on all your favorite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin, and you've been awesome.